Good morning, everyone. It's good to see everyone here. We've got a good crowd here today. It's great to see everyone. Um, welcome, as, as Rochelle said, welcome to all of our guests. Uh, welcome to everyone joining us online and in person. It's just great to uh, have multiple ways that we can connect uh, together during this time. And uh, I just want to say a huge thank you again to everyone who's serving today. So let's just give a hand for everyone serving at Trinity. Thank you so much. And just an update on our masking policy. We do plan to change our masking policy soon. In the next uh, week or two or few weeks, uh, we'll be giving more information out about that just to be in line with the, the regulations and changes that are coming through. But as of today, so unless you hear any changes, otherwise just continue as normal, but we'll be changing it pretty soon here um, to be in line with uh, everything else that's happening. So uh, what are we doing? We're in Exodus today, continuing this series. Uh, we've been doing this for the last uh, little while. We started this before Easter, actually, and then took a break for our Easter series. Uh, but we're going to be in Exodus chapter 23 today. Exodus chapter 23 and starting in verse 23. Let me give a quick recap in case you're not familiar with the story of Exodus in the Bible. So basically, the beginning, Exodus is the second book in, in the Old Testament, in the, in the, the Bible, and uh, it starts with the, actually the forgotten history between God's people, the, the Israelites, the Hebrews, and the Egyptians. And what you learned at the uh, end of Genesis was that God had sent Joseph to Egypt to save uh, the whole region from a famine. And uh, there was this good history between uh, God intervening and God saving the, the Egyptians uh, using Joseph. And Joseph's family stays in Egypt and they uh, grow there and prosper there. But as time goes on, this good history is forgotten. And uh, the Hebrews like to get married and like to have kids. a little bit different to the Egyptians. They had a little bit of a different value system. And so the, uh, the Israelites are multiplying, growing like crazy. And the Egyptians live in dread of them. They're terrified that... Uh, they're losing their country, they're losing their way of life, they feel threatened by them, and so they uh, enslave them into forced labor, and they start actually a genocide, killing their baby boys, doing horrific, evil things. And so the, the Hebrews cry out for relief and for rescue, and God raises up a deliverer, Moses, who is saved from this genocide, and actually adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, and raised as an Egyptian himself, and then later on in life becomes aware of the oppression of his people, and actually ends up murdering uh, an Egyptian. Uh, kind of the wrong move, because he has to flee. Has uh, now kind of committed a crime. And so he's gone for a long time. Very, very long time. Gone. And, uh, but, then, but God's not done. God's still got a plan to use this deliverer to deliver his people from their bondage. And uh, he meets uh, Moses in this burning bush and speaks to him through this miraculous encounter. And Moses receives this calling to go back to Egypt and to see the Hebrews released from their slavery. And so God uses him to send these plagues, these terrible plagues on the Egyptians because they will not change their hearts uh, and will not release uh, the Israelites, the Hebrews. And so these terrible plagues come. The, Egypt, the, the Hebrews, excuse me, are eventually uh, saved and rescued through the parting of the Red Sea and Pharaoh and his army are destroyed, drowned, completely overpowered uh, by that. And as God's people then venture off into the wilderness and move on to this so-called promised land that God said they're going to have, they run out of food and they're grumbling and hungry and hangry and annoyed. And um, God provides bread from heaven, miraculously feeds them along the journey and gives them water from a rock. All these incredible miraculous provisions gives them the law. We looked at that last week. Sp spoke from the mountain directly to the people giving them the Ten Commandments. And uh, what we're going to learn today is we're going to learn, we're going to see now God giving them insight and foresight 
into how he intends for them to actually inherit this new promised land of Canaan, how it's going to become their possession, God's plan and intention to deliver, to deliver it into their hands. And we're going to see through this God's intent to really rid the world of evil, to destroy evil, but also to establish his people, to give his people a home. Um, like always, we're going to see that really this can only be fulfilled and only make sense through the life and ministry and the coming of Jesus. Let's pray, and then we're going to read Exodus 23. Jesus, help us today to understand your word and your purposes. Help us to understand these ancient stories, that they're so relevant and important for today, for all generations. Teach us what they mean. Transform us. God, for everyone here today, meet their needs. Bless them. Speak to them. Come to them. And for those who don't yet have the faith, they can't quite get there, God, give them the faith today to trust you and follow you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's read here. Exodus 23, starting in verse 23. It says, When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you, and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from, you, uh, from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate. And the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, you will surely, excuse me, it will surely be a snare to you. This is God's word. So in the first couple of verses here, verses 23 and 24, starts off God saying, an angel is going to basically help you transition from being in the wilderness, in the desert, to now being in the land of Canaan. Now, I'm not going to really unpack that too much. We actually have a series coming up in the fall called The Unseen World. So you're not going to want to miss this. We're going to go through angels, angelology, demons, heaven, hell, some exciting topics. So stick around uh, for that. But just to say very quickly that it's not uncommon in the Bible for sometimes there to be referred to as the angel of the Lord. And this at times can refer to God himself. It's a bit confusing to us. We don't quite get the understanding of the Hebrew and why they do that. But that's not uncommon. That could be what's happening here. But the big point is God is the one leading them. 
God is the deliverer. God is their protector. He's going to lead them from this very vulnerable place into a more established uh, place, and he, he's the one that's promising them that he's going to fight uh, for them and be with them. Now, God does say that he is going to blot out these six nations, and he mentions the nations, and lo and behold, they're gone. They don't exist anymore. Like many nations in history, people groups, uh, they don't tend to last. Uh, they tend to uh, implode or get conquered or something bad happens to them. Uh, but, you know, the, the idea of being uh, God blotting out people and whole nations uh, sounds a bit harsh, doesn't it? Sounds it kind of offends some of our modern day sensibilities. Like, yeah, this is, you know, that's, why, that's, why, that's why it's tempting to not want to preach from the Bible, in, even in church. Because you read it and you're like, how on earth do you explain it? doesn't seem right. doesn't seem good to us. So, but what we understand is the, word, the term blot out, you have to look at the description of what actually happens. So you actually see it's a gradual and incremental transition that God's about. So in verse the end, it actually uh, tells us, uh, God says to them, you're going to drive them out. So the idea here is that you're going to chase off these people, all right? And uh, the, the, the idea of blotting it sounds harsh to us in our minds, but really, if you think about it, if you get a mark in, in a garment or in, in fabric, and you take, you take a, a cloth with, with water and you, you blot it, right, it's a very delicate, careful, slow process to restore what was there. It's, we have to understand it a bit uh, differently in our minds. But even, even with that understanding of the, what the term means, and it might be gradual, even with that, we're still a bit sensitive to the idea of... Uh, the displacement of people groups and land ownership, right? The history between your bad blood between you know one group taking land from another group, and you know it's really hard for us to have these have normal conversations about this subject matter in our cultural time, right? They're very sensitive about these these issues, understandably so. There's some bad history there; it's difficult for us, uh, but. There are good reasons uh, why God is doing this, and I'll give us some good reasons, help us understand this, but let me just make this first point before I make any other points, is that we have to, part of our faith is believing and trusting and understanding that God has the highest moral character and the highest moral virtue. It has reasons for things that we cannot understand and is not obligated to give us reasons for stuff that he does or says. So if he gives us reasons, it's actually pretty nice, pretty great. But we may not even understand all the reasons that, that, that God has. But think about it like this, that we, we can be kind of hypocritical. We can kind of have opinions about things, but we, we, we really need to approach this more humbly because we don't know the context. We don't know the circumstances. We don't know all the things. We don't understand. We don't see God's perspective on things. And so part of it, when you, when you find something in Scripture that, that, that kind of offends you or that you're just not sure about, how does it make sense, you have to sit with it and do some study talk to others, discuss it, and sit with them, try and understand, really, what does it mean? How does it make sense? But we understand that God is a good God, has a good character, and if he's doing this, this makes sense, and this is ultimately a good thing that he is doing. Now, the re one of the reasons that makes sense to us is these nations are incredibly corrupt, evil nations. So they had barbaric, awful practices. They would so the Bible tells us that the other, some of these other nations, that they would take their babies and sacrifice them in fire as worship to their gods. It's pretty, pretty evil, pretty corrupt stuff. So even though God is moving these people out, he's displacing and, and wanting to get rid of this, these, these evil cultures and set his people in with his moral law, even though that's happening, God is not without mercy. Because when you fast forward to the book of, of uh, Joshua, 
what you see happening, because this generation actually, even though God's revealing the plan and the promise, this is what you're going to do, they don't get to do it. It's the next generation that gets to do it. They wander around 40 years in the desert, as you know. And... uh, but even, even fast-forwarding to the book of Joshua, what you, have, what you see there is uh, you see when they actually approach each place and each territory and each people group, these people know they're coming. They know what God did to Pharaoh and the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. And they have fair warning to leave at any point. But I, so, so the questions we can ask ourselves is, well, why doesn't God just like change people's minds? Or just make them live in harmony. Why doesn't he just make them go? Why doesn't he just put the Israelites somewhere else? Or why did we ask these questions? Forgetting, we just already forget what we've just learned about their experience in Egypt. People don't like to change their minds. People like to enslave other people and burn their babies and do terrible, awful things because they're following these false gods that, that lead them astray, promise all these different things, and then betray them every time. And so this is the way God's dealing with this in this moment. But it's not without mercy. He is, there's fair warning here that people can leave, but if they don't leave, then it means conquest. It does mean some fighting. Even when, in, in, again, in the book of Joshua, when the first place they meet, you may be, you're, it's famous, you, you know, you've probably heard the, the Bible stories maybe, but they, they come to Jericho, right? And the whole classic thing, and marching around Jericho and the walls falling down. When you study the archaeology and you study the historicity of it, what you learn is it's much more likely that Jericho was uh, a military base, uh, that's kind of on the outskirts and a heavily fortified kind of uh, compound could have had as, as few as 50 soldiers stationed there. So it's not a kind of hustling and bustling civilian city that we would think of because we could, you know, sometimes we can think, how can they just tear, you know, God tear down the walls and they go in and like this sounds really bad. Uh, but when you understand the context of it, it changes the way that you, you view what's happening. There's some military maneuvers happening. The force though, that is permitted here and that God is actually even himself doing because God's put plagues on the Egyptians too and that's going to be uh, causing confusion, sending these hornets, driving the people out. Uh, And even God's people, uh, the Israelites, are going to have to learn how to war. They're going to have battles to face. They're going to have to fight. The force that's used here is nothing to do with, it's not against any race or ethnicity. It's about what is right and what is wrong. That's what it's about. We have to be realistic that military action is sometimes unavoidable. A good example of that would be something like World War II. Sometimes it's unavoidable. Not that it's easy, but think about it like this. We, maybe, you've, maybe you've said this or maybe you, you've heard somebody say something like this before. I've heard plenty of friends and family make these kind of comments before. We just need to burn down the whole system. You heard you know, some, people will make these kind of comments. We just the whole system. We just got to burn down the whole system and start from scratch. Start from, or people use you know we need a revolution. People will use revolutionary language. If we think that or have heard that or, or might have said that, we've got to be kind of a bit more self-aware. The calling for something like that is an enormous amount of bloodshed and violence, probably worse than what's happening in the story we just read. So we need to check ourselves a little bit about our level of judgment on what we think is right and wrong, and we can pretty easily find ourselves justifying things that we might condemn others for. But God wants to transform this whole region. He wants to transform it for a very important reason. The biggest reason is that he doesn't want his people to be ensnared by the idols, the false gods, and the false worship by the, uh, the gods of this region. Because one of the things you have to understand is, back in this time, so for the Hebrews as well, they would have thought this way. And This doesn't make sense in our 
minds in the way we think about spirituality and religion. But to them, this would have made sense that gods were regional. Gods were regional. So you go to a different area, there's a god that rules that area, or, different, or multiple gods. And the, the Hebrews were raised in a polytheistic culture in Egypt. There were all kinds of varieties of gods you can pick from. So it would have been really tempting for them coming into the Canaanite region with all the surrounding other nations that God mentions, coming in and saying, well, Yahweh was good for breaking us out of Egypt. He was good for getting us through the Red Sea. He was good for the wilderness. You know, he did some really powerful things. But now we're in this Canaanite territory. They've got their own gods. They've got their own religions. They've got their own needs. And they're very sophisticated about it. They've got a whole culture built around it. So it would have been very tempting for them to not necessarily get rid of Yahweh, but to say, well, we need to add in some of these other practices and some of these other ideas of these other gods, these other idols and the other habits that they have, and we, that's what we need to do. We need, and it would have been extremely tempting for the people to do that. But what we learn time and again from the Bible is that paganism does not mix with Yahwehism. They don't go together. So God tells them to be pretty ruthless about getting rid of this evil from their own lives. And one of the things he tells them, we read it in, it's in the first verse that we read, or first few verses that we read, God says, tear down their pillars. Tear them down, the pillars. Tear them down. What is this? Well, in Canaanite, in this context, you know, different cultures in history would erect these upright standing giant stones. And in Canaanite sanctuaries, you'd find like 10 of them stacked up together. Different cultures erect these stones for different reasons at different times and different purposes, but the context for the Canaanite Baal worship were that these were phallic representations. So in God saying, tear them down, he's literally saying, castrate these false idols. They're idols of fertility. This, this is what the region of the Canaanites worship. They worship the idols of health, gods of health. They worship gods of fertility. They worship gods uh, of longevity, because they felt like if we worship these gods these, and we do these practices, then that's the benefit. That's what we get from these gods by sacrificing to them and worshiping them. And the Israelites would have been ensnared and tempted to believe that this was good, to believe that this is how they should have worshipped. And the word, even the word ensnare, it says it in the, the very last verse, uh, actually, says that surely, if you, don't, if you don't get rid of this stuff, surely it will be a snare to you. Now, when we, in the English, you know, we read the word snare, it, it, it doesn't sound that bad to us. It almost sounds like, you know, the way I think about it, it's like, it's like, oh, no, I'm, how inconvenient. I'm stuck in a trap, you know. Shoot. I'm uh, just a little inconvenienced here in this little trap, this little snare I've been caught in. That's, in Hebrew thought, that's not how they would have thought about it, right? We've got to get ourselves into Hebrew thought here. If they hear somebody saying, you're going to get ensnared, they hear you're going to be destroyed. That's what they hear. Because if you get caught in a trap, you're being hunted. You've been captured. You're somebody's food. <laughs> you, you, you're going to die. This is God saying you, you can't mess with the, the, re, the regional gods. You can't mess with them. You've got, you got to completely pull down their, tillers, te, their, their pillars, excuse me, tear down their pillars, destroy their idols. You can't worship them, their they make false promises, false claims. There's a lot for us to learn here, isn't there? A lot, of, a lot of parallels for us here. It's really hard to live by people and groups of people who have very different values and very different beliefs and very different things that they worship. 
than your faith. It's really hard. Because, and the Israelites found this time and again, they were constantly allured and tempted by what the nations around them promised and what the gods of the regions promised. They're constantly falling into sin, being tempted into these, into these sins, and it's the same. It hasn't changed for us. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we, do we love the world too much? Are we tempted to worship, worship the idols of health and what the world says in terms of how we should think about health or, or fertility or longevity? These fertility cults, God's saying, don't live to their sexual ethics and their reproductive ethics. Don't live to their to the things that they value and things they say. You've got to completely tear it down and obliterate it and walk away from it. So the hard thing for us is we can't see, we can't leave the world. I think Christians can go one of two ways. Christians can become either we're nervous about how different we are from the world because we're aware if we believe in Jesus, yep, pretty different to the world, pretty different. And it's getting worse, right? So one temptation is I'm just going to become more and more like the world. That's what happened to the Israelites over and over again. I'm just going to dabble in and flirt with and and mess around with and be allured and tempted into the, the false idolatry and false worship of the things of this world. That's, that's one way to go with it. And so Christians continually compromise and push the boundaries of their faith and deny God's word. And all those terrible things happen. And there are serious consequences to that. That's being ensnared. That's destruction. The other way you can go with it is to say, well, no, I'm committed. I love God, love Jesus, love the word. I got to get out of here. I just got to run away from, I got I to run away from the world. It's too, too much pressure. It's too hard. I can't face it. And that, that's, that's wrong too. Both of those are wrong. The calling we have, see, see even though they're driving out these people groups, they're still gonna, they still exist in the world. The Israelites still exist in the world. And they're supposed to be a light to the world to show everyone else this is how it works. And even, even what, what's fascinating is even though God's saying, I'm going to blot these people out, I'm going to remove them, I'm going to displace them from the land, what's interesting is in the New Testament, it reveals to us that there was a mystery that was hidden throughout the ages. And the mystery is that God had always intended to bring the non-Jewish Gentile nations into the fold as well. That was always God's plan. And you see it time and again, even in the Old Testament, lots of provisions given for the foreigner, the outsider, to actually be integrated and to be joined into membership within covenant Israel with God. You see, that's God's heart time and time again. So that's, that's what God is up to in all of this, not to be separate from the world, but to be a light to the world. And actually the solution, it gives us the solution. It tells us what's going to happen once these people inherit and they're established in the land. And it's all about us. Have, it's all about the people and about us. Even this is a parallel for us today is having the solution is to have a radical faith, to not become like the world and also to not to run away from the world is to stay in this awkward, and it's a real tension. It's a very difficult tension, a real awkward place to stay in to say, I'm going to be present, but I'm not going to become like it. I'm not going to be branded by it. I'm going to live my own identity that God, from God, of course, God's identity that I've received from him. I'm not going to live to the identities of the world. But the only way to do that is to actually have a very radical faith. It means getting more and more serious about what I believe, about God's word, about being involved, about taking those steps, not just not messing around with it anymore. Because it's kind of a lukewarm kind of faith that's just like God's a compartment of my life, God's just a little part of my life. 
it doesn't stand up to scrutiny or test or pressure. It, it falls apart very quickly. It just takes a few little pressure points to come till it crumbles away. And you've probably seen that in people's lives. I've seen that in many people's lives over the years, lots of years of ministry. And you realize people, God's a compartment in their life. He's not their life. He's a compartment of their life. And when certain pressures come, people just, they just, they give up. They abandon it. They, they compromise. They change things. And you, you realize, I've got, I, need, I need a more robust, a more radical faith. And it tells us in verse, verse 25 and 26, tells us the goal of this migration out of Egypt and the displacement of these evil, corrupt nations and then the inheritance of this new land for God's people. The goal, the ultimate goal is that they will serve God. They used to serve Pharaoh. They used to be ruled by an evil taskmaster who forced them to perpetuate and to continue to build the, the idolatrous nation of, of Egypt at the time and all their false worship and their false beliefs and evil practices. And the Hebrews were forced to do that now. But now they're not slaves to Pharaoh anymore, slaves to evil tasks anymore, and they're now slaves to righteousness, slaves to the ultimate good, Yahweh, God himself, who's going to perpetuate goodness and morality on the earth. The grand point in all this is that human beings, we are not... See, well, we are worshipful, worshipful creatures. There is no such thing as a neutral state of being for a human being. No, it doesn't exist. That we can just be self-fulfilled, self-reliant, self-functioning entities that just get rid of all of our desires and don't... It's not possible. We're always searching for an object of worship. And until you understand that about the human race and about yourself... You're always searching, and you can turn yourself into that object of worship, but we're always searching for some form, something to latch ourselves onto, to pour ourselves out to, because we're unsatisfied, constantly unsatisfied with everything around us. Everything doesn't make sense or can't find meaning unless we find the greatest source of worship that we can pour ourselves into it, and we pick wrong things all the time. We pick health and fertility or longevity or whatever it might be. What are the temptations we're... we're tempted to pick. We pick them all the time. And the, the, the message from, from Scripture time and time again is there's no neutral state. You, the only way you'll be ever be fully satisfied, the, the only way you'll ever know truly who you are, the only way that you'll find true meaning in life is if you, pour, you learn to pour yourself out to and latch yourself onto and have this radical relationship with the one true God of the Bible, Yahweh. There's no other way. I, I want to get back to this point of Later on, of the, the idea that we, we, we're getting rid of darkness and evil in our lives, being radical about that, but also radical about serving God and serving His purposes. I want to get back to that. But these verses also tell us that, that God's promise He's going to bless their bread and their water. He's going to bless them. He's going to, he's going to take away all their sickness. He's going to, um, then no one's going to be barren in the land, and they're, they're going to uh, have long life. He's going to number, you know, their, de- they're going to be, their days will be fulfilled, is the way it, it puts it. What's fascinating about this is, God's promises here are the direct counter to the idols of the area, the false promises of the area. And so the Canaanites and the surrounding regions, they worshipped these idols, but they were devastated by plagues, devastated by infertility caused by their terrible sexual ethics, actually. And so God gave the people, the Israelites, very elaborate, um, very elaborate cleansing practices, all right, so if you ever, ever tried to read the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, 
Anyone tried to get through that and you lose heart at some, certain points? You're like, I don't understand. What's, hopefully, what, hopefully the context here helps you understand the book of Leviticus because it was really important. God gave them all these regulations. They were more advanced, more sophisticated than any other nation on earth. Follow these practices, these cleansing practices to get rid of plagues. Obey God's instructions on this. But not only that, and even in the Ten Commandments specifically, they're told to honor their father and mother. This is, again, is a different ethic, different morality than the other nations who didn't honor the elderly. So honoring the, the young and the old. That's oftentimes you see cultures that start to dishonor the young and the old are moving farther and farther away from God's standards and God's moral law and just goodness. And uh, that's happening, of course, in our culture as, as well increasingly. But the idea is here that if you follow these commandments, you follow these laws, you follow these practices, these cleansing practices, then you'll have health. You'll have health because you won't be spreading disease. These, these pandemics, these uh, plagues uh, will be cured. And if you honor your parents, then society will have a place that's safe for the elderly, that, that honors them. And you'll have fertility in all these regards because of the health that you have. And so, Because it sounds a bit supernatural, doesn't it? God's saying hey, you're not going to have any sickness, you're going to not have any problem getting pregnant, you're going to um, you know, have longevity. It sounds like God's just going to be like this supernatural cloud hovering over them, zapping them with all this supernatural juicy power, uh, enabling them to live this way. But actually, when you think about it, and when you study the, the book of Exodus, you realize, okay, God gave them practices to follow that would actually bring about these promises. So follow, following all the cleansing rituals, following honoring their father and their mother, all these things would bring about health, fertility, and longevity. So they're conditional promises. They're conditional promises. If we, so we have to understand, if we obey God, there's blessing in that. There's provision in that. Even in, even in the book of Job, I mean, the, the suffering that Job went through, it's, it's hard to understand at times, but what happened at the very end? God blessed him materially. Now, let me back up a second here. Don't believe in a prosperity gospel, right? You give God a certain amount of money, you get a certain amount of money, right? We're not into that. But what we are into is obeying God and understanding that God likes to bless that. And he can bless it in all kinds of ways with all kinds of, all kinds of things. In our suffering, we also understand there's purposes uh, in that too. The key, though, for the people of God back then and for the people of God for us today is to learn to serve God, which is the purpose of them being established in the land, to serve God, not serve the blessings of God. It's such a temptation to want to serve the blessings of God. This is what most religions are. They're, I do this thing for God to get the blessing out of God. Christianity is completely different. The God of the Bible is completely different to this way. God he has promised to bless us. There are, there are conditional blessings, but the key is to learn to say, God's in first place. I, I, I trust and obey his judgment above all other judgments, his ways above all other ways, that he is a good father and I can follow him. And then he gives the people actually habits and practices to cultivate these, this way of thinking in them. So even in the next few chapters in, in Exodus uh, here, that God institutes like contributions and giving. There's this, this idea that you're supposed to grow a generous heart. You're supposed to give of your income and your wealth. That's, that's one of the ways that you, you, you don't worship the blessings of God, but you actually worship God is to say, well, God's blessed me so I can bless others. It's not just so I can have a cushy life, but I'm willing to give and share. Bless those. That's part of the practice of it. So God's always working at cultivating this idea of the people they've been put in the land to serve 
him and his purposes. And, and it's very practical too. So, so the, these last few verses here, verse 27 through 30, God gives a description, right, of how this is going to, all going to play out. This is God's plan. And God's plans are perfect. And it's very practical, very pragmatic. I mean, there's some supernatural stuff too, right? The hornets are there. The confusion's going to come. It's slowly, bit by bit, the other nations are going to be forced out. And God's people are going to take over this, this land. And, uh, but God says, well, I'm going to do it slowly so that the wild beasts don't multiply and harm you. Now, you might think, well, wait a second. Uh, couldn't God just take care of the wild beasts too? You know, like a, use a shock collar or something, set up a perimeter, keep them all out, or just whatever. Just God just snap his fingers. And What the Bible's telling us is, yes, God's a God of the supernatural. He's a God who parts the Red Sea, sends plagues on Egypt, pillar of fire, pillar of smoke, you know, bread from heaven, water from a rock, all these powerful things that God does. But he's not just a God of the supernatural. He's a God of the supernormal. There's something strange here that we miss. We miss this. I don't know how we miss it, but we miss it because there's, I don't know, there's something wrong in our brains. We miss that God sets things up oftentimes in many ways to be slow, ordinary, more involved processes that involve us doing stuff. Both happen. There's the supernatural, there's breakthroughs, and we're supposed to pray for that and believe in that. But there's also God wants our full participation in what he's doing. Sometimes we can be so upset and frustrated of what we don't have and what God could provide and solve at the click of his fingers. And we can be mad and frustrated. Why can't, if God can do this, why can't he just do this? If he's done this, why can't he just do this? And we, because we're thinking that way, we miss, we miss the very practical, very real involvement and participation that God wants us to step into in the here and now. Because God's in control of the supernatural stuff. Like, he can use us to do that, but that's still up to him. God's calling us into the supernormal, into the little by little, the gradual, because there's practical concerns. The way that we learn, and, and, and the people, they had, they had battles to fight. They had to learn how to do this stuff. They had to learn how to build a nation, how to build God's kingdom, how to bring heaven to earth. That's how Jesus taught us to praise. God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that we're here to transform the world around us by building God's kingdom up, by doing the good works, not the evil works of Egypt or Pharaoh, but the good works of God's kingdom in the here and now. And the way that we're told to do the good works of the kingdom of God in the here and now is to serve God. Jesus does this amazing thing, obviously thousands of years later, but Jesus does this thing where he washes the disciples' feet and then, which is a very humble thing to do because the feet were gross, couple of thousand years ago, if you didn't know that. They're still gross today, I guess, that's the point. Yes, people are nodding their heads. They were even more gross. And uh, so Jesus washes his disciples' feet, which is something that a servant did. And then when he did it, he said, now you need to do this for each other. That's the example of our Savior and our Lord, our Maker, our Redeemer, who we need to live for more radically than we are right now. And the way we serve God is to serve each other in the most humble, most selfless ways that we can imagine. This is true for every generation of believers. Believers, It's true for us. We're big on this at Trinity. We're big on this. We're unapologetically big on this. Every Christian needs a kingdom responsibility. 
some type of ownership, some type of participation, some type of involvement. It's not good or healthy for us just to show up and just to receive. There is much greater blessing in pouring ourselves out, pouring ourselves into the purposes and the good things of God. So consider, you know, we talk about small groups today. Small groups are so vital. We've got three groups during the summer. The summer's a tricky time. We're traveling. We've in, got inconsistent schedules and all that kind of stuff. But if you can join a group, even if you can only make half of it, jump into a group. Join a serving team. Start helping on a Sunday. Start doing, take on that full participation, the, the super normal thing. We've got all kinds of super normal things that you can get involved in at Trinity Church to play a part, to participate in God's grand adventure. There's one specific opportunity I want to mention to you. We're looking for somebody to take on our special events. So as a church throughout the year, we try to have these kind of high point Sundays. We kind of sprinkle about eight of them out throughout the year where they're kind of celebratory events for us as a family, church family, to kind of have a little bit extra fun and joy together in God, but also they're kind of good on-ramps for new people uh, and also to invite people to them as well that can serve that purpose. And so we're looking for somebody who says, Hey, I want to get, I want to get on the game, in, in on the game more than I am right now, and I'm good at event planning. I'm good. I want help to help people have a good time and celebrate. So if that's you, if you're interested in that, I'll be in the lobby afterwards. Come talk to me. You can fill in a Connect card. You can take a, a step in that uh, direction. But for everyone, finding something to do is so good, so valuable, so life-giving, and falls in line with, with God's purposes and God's mission. Now, lastly, with the last promise we're told, and this passage that we, uh, we read here is that God, will, God promises to establish them in the land. He promises to establish them in the land. And he's going to define, he gives them the geographical definition of the borders of the land that they're going to occupy. The Bible itself tells us that all these ancient stories, yes, they were real things that happened for the purposes of which they served in that time, but they also serve as living metaphors for the person and work of Jesus. Jesus said, I have come to prepare a place for you. Jesus is the one that defines the boundaries of our life, that gives us a home, gives us safety, gives us comfort, gives us belonging, and gives us a purpose to live for more than anything else. Let's have the band come up. We want to respond to this in worship. Today, let's turn to Jesus and let's return to Jesus if we've, been, if we've drifted away from our faith, understanding this, that Jesus defines the boundaries of of our lives, and he said it's, he goes before us to prepare a place for us that in this life he can help us belong and participate and make sense of our lives and rely on him and live for his glory, but also he's preparing a place, an eternal home for us. That's the confidence we have, the full confidence we have. Don't fear death. If somebody takes your life away from you today, going into God's presence will be better than anything else you've ever experienced. Do not fear death. Don't fear not achieving the things in your life that you so desperately want to achieve. Or so des the health that you would love to have. It would be great to have health. Hey, I've got all kinds of health problems in my family, in my life. I'd love to have more health. Fertility. Yeah, love to be, to, you know, some people, yeah, love to be married, love to have kids, love to, you know, all these different things. Longevity. You know, man, life, don't life to end too soon. All the different things. You know what? And God's, God goes ahead of us to prepare a place for us that will be so much more glorious, so much more wonderful than anything else that this life can offer to us. What an eternal hope. What an eternal promise. What 
That doesn't mean this life doesn't count. Of course it counts. Of course it matters. It matters how we live. Of course it does. But it means that it's not our hope. It's not our, the final thing. It's a temporary thing. There's an eternal thing. He's defining the boundaries of it. He's preparing this place for us, and he's going to give us full identity. We'll never be satisfied unless we understand that our citizenship is in that place, not in this place. But that's our family. Families here are temporary things. Marriage is temporary. You know that, right? Won't be married when you get to heaven. Some people are happy about that, you know? <laughs> New, newlyweds who are really in love with each other are the most unhappy about that. Our faith lets us know that when we're in God's presence, it doesn't compare to anything. It, it literally does not compare to anything. And all the comparisons to God in the Bible are things like, God's like this other thing. But it's very clear God is not that thing, but he's, he's like this other thing. There's nothing, there's actually, there's nothing you can say he's equal to. We have access to God through the death and resurrection, through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross on our behalf. Today, let's celebrate and honor what Jesus has done for us. You know what feels really good? Hitting that beautiful like button. It's just sitting right there all alone with nothing to do. Help it live to its fullest potential. You know what else feels really good? Embracing that subscribe button. It's like a puppy begging for attention. Just showing it a little bit of love goes a long way. Like and subscribe.